Hello and welcome to Atlantic Fellows Conversations. I'm Fanula Sweeney. Throughout this series, Being Human When Digital, we've been exploring how AR and VR can further the Atlantic Fellows' aim of building healthier and fairer societies for all. As a community of hope, we wanted to use the series to explore and envision better tech futures while recognizing that big tech often exacerbates pre-existing racial, social and economic inequities. We knew it was vital to rigorously interrogate the key ethical concerns around AR, VR and big tech. So we asked Atlantic Fellow for Racial Equity, Will Nader Negron, a strategic advisor at the Ford Foundation, to help moderate our discussions. We considered topics such as how can ARVR effectively support social justice work when cost and digital literacy are barriers to access for so many? How can we unleash the activist potential of virtual spaces given the very real concerns around data privacy and surveillance? And how can we commit to decolonization while using hardware produced by big tech? Today, Wilnada joins me to reflect on some of those discussions. I began by asking what, in her view, were the ethical concerns that ran through the entire Being Human When Digital series. You can probably pin it down to two things. One of them is the origin story of where technology originates from, the economic drivers and the economic actors that actually give birth to, the tools that we later get a hold of in civil society or in different movements and want to use and present a lot of promise and a lot of opportunity for really adapting these tools to do transformative work in our various sectors of work, whether it's health or indigenous rights or education. You could go on with the number of sectors, but because sometimes we don't truly understand the economic side of where the technology comes from and who are the people that are shaping the development and who are then creating the incentives that contribute to problematic business models and contribute to practices that can undermine labor standards or you know just have a variety of really negative implications in society and economy we are just as a society coming to understand that and we're reacting really to the past 20 years of technology innovation so we're just now getting to grips with the emergence of what Amazon what Facebook what Twitter what Instagram has presented in a way that it shapes society when Twitter first came out my field work for my dissertation was focused on just the transformative aspect of Twitter for creating movements like Arab Spring or even student movements in Taiwan or Latin America it was this platform that allowed anyone to amplify their voice and to really build power in a very transformative collective way now we can fast forward and understand that Twitter Facebook they were founded in a very homogeneous privatized tech innovation system that comes out of Silicon Valley and they have business models that they've adapted and shareholders that they answer to that have created the economic side of these tools now we're understanding the negative side of that and so unpacking the origin story was the really deep ethical component again the origin story goes into like who are the people creating the technology like what are the business models are utilizing to finance to make these free and accessible and what's the implication of all of those things on society in ways that we can't see the second meta level ethical issue is that to unpack the complexity and leverage the power of these new technologies specifically ARBR 
we are going to need new ways of working across sectors and across issue areas that are going to really test humanity. And it's already testing humanity. And how do we adapt? Because technology innovation happens so rapidly, trying to find new ways to work together to deal with the complexity of these issues. You need a multidisciplinary perspective and you need to be able to do a lot of translation across policy as well as on the economic side of things, as well as the beautiful reimagining that happens. And we need to do all of those things kind of at the same time. And it's super complex. The innovation happens so quickly that what is concerning is that we will never really be able to catch up to it in a way that we can get to it early so that we can be early shapers and early thinkers in how those technologies get developed and how they get implemented so that it's not 10 years after the fact that we're using these things and then just, oh, wow, I'm realizing that there's a fabric of society that's been breaking while I've been buying all these ARVR headsets. And then there's things like privacy surveillance. They're all tied to those main two buckets. And yet you would argue that AR, VR technology is essential to supporting social justice work. It can powerfully support social justice work. Absolutely. Particularly now in the pandemic, there is an acceleration in trying to think about how to build communities in non-physical spaces and how to support cross-learning and developing empathy towards things that we can experience directly. And there's already a lot of really, really powerful work happening across those areas. One of the fellows spoke about they're working on a project that is trying to increase sensitivity around certain health issues. And ARVR has the power to really flip the switch on our positionality in relation to society and how we experience things in a really, really powerful, transformative way that we're just really beginning to untap. And then the storytelling component, whether it was Nani and Dylan's work, that is deeply humanistic and deeply artistic that has the power to wrap all that complexity in a storytelling format that's really impactful. And so the potential is there and the time is really now to really be like engaging the promise and the challenges at the same time. And a lot was spoken about balancing hope, optimism with the criticisms that surround the introduction of AR, VR. What was it about this series that gave you hope or reason for optimism? What gives me hope is there are lots of people from many walks of life and expertise and issue areas asking and coming to the same conclusions as far as where can we go from here, both in exploring the promise and thinking about working across disciplines or across sectorally. We are so much more equipped and prepared and knowledgeable of just how to embrace technology innovation and how to move forward with it in a very proactive, substantive way. And that's a muscle and an awareness that wasn't there 15, 20 years ago. And people are thinking about this with a very strong equity lens as well, both in disrupting the drivers of structural racism, but also, again, the disproportionate impact in access and in the negative implications it could have on vulnerable communities. When I was involved in these conversations 15 years ago, you had to talk to a lot of people to make that argument and technology seemed pretty neutral for the most part. 
the resounding feedback from fellows was it was very much in their focus and their lens, as well as very much wanting to explore the potential of the technology. If you say it's difficult to catch up with Silicon Valley and business models, is it possible still at this relatively early stage to engage Silicon Valley and discuss with them their business models, the implications, the ethical implications for social justice work in particular that their technology brings to the fore and that somehow it might be possible to influence those business models? Yeah, you just yeah walked into some emerging work actually because the policy and regulatory frameworks are just beginning. I mean, at least in the US, obviously the EU is much more advanced with a broader policy framework to protect different stakeholders of the economy and vulnerable communities around some of the privacy implications of the different technology products. Global South, not as much. It's a fragmented global system of protection, which Because we work globally in the Atlantic fellow community, it gives opportunity for some really interesting cross-collaboration work on supporting each other's work on the policy and regulatory spaces as it relates to our communities and our country, because a lot of what that policy regulatory work also requires is building collective people power In the U.S. in particular, there's a lot of work, a lot of movement building work happening across labor, immigration rights, gender rights, um, racial equity communities, different stakeholders of society are building power and starting to name some of these ways that these products affect their livelihood and their their ability to have agency and seek employment and have a life without surveillance building collective power, both in our local community or our country and globally as sort of like a pushback is what helps to strengthen the policy framework as well as the regulatory framework. Because without citizens speaking up about some of the practices, it doesn't trigger the regulatory response or not enough resources go into the regulatory function that actually does some of the pushback or investigations of some of these practices. And so The policy regulatory is super complex. It has a multi-layered shaping of bringing different groups together to really strengthen that piece of it. But on the economic side, because the policy regulatory is fragmented, slow moving, requires a lot of multi-stakeholder collective power building, there is a lot of emerging work happening with venture capital and with tech companies around helping them to understand social justice and racial equity and the need to not undo the fabric of society and the labor protections that are there to protect workers, for example. But a lot of that work requires a lot of really clunky translation. There's not a lot of people that work in those spaces that help to translate in a meaningful way to those actors how to do better due diligence. An example of that is that there's a lot of venture capital which fund a lot of these privatized tech innovation. They are beginning to understand things like ESG. ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance indicators. And that helps them to do some due diligence in how they invest. It basically just adds a few questions for them to ask a tech company or to analyze a particular business model and its impact. And that work is really emerging. And the people from civil society that need to be informing the sorts of questions that would go in the ESG framework that 
is used in a capital market, there's not a lot of people that are doing that translation and doing that kind of cross-collaborative work. A lot of this deeper economic work is a very complex area that involves lots of types of investors beyond venture capital. Venture capital gets their money from institutional investors, which is foundations and sovereign wealth banks, and increasingly so hedge funds and private equity. And so you can go to venture capital and ask them to do more due diligence around certain business models that these tech companies may have. But where they get the money is this other set of actors, these institutional investors, and they are not looking at these things as much. It's a very complex, fragmented set of actors to engage and to do a lot of translation. And there's less of that happening. And that is exactly what needs to be happening now, but it's an emerging field. Staying with the question of big tech for a moment, can activists commit to decolonization whilst using hardware which is produced by big tech? That is a challenge that has been in activist spaces. The desire to have an alternative is always there, but the alternative doesn't have the audience that social justice actors need to be able to communicate and pass their message. You know, if there was an alternative to Facebook, but only 50,000 people were there, you probably wouldn't be using that platform to communicate. You'd use Facebook. And so people go where the community is. Also, philanthropy doesn't fully yet know, or even private capital, how to support more democratically owned alternative platforms. Maybe people will use Facebook for communication, but they want to use some other tools. Like even if there's like a public interest version of an ARVR that is ethical and responsible, And I'm sure that there are people out there in this world that are imagining and thinking of that, the ability for them to find resources to create that alternative AR, VR headset that's responsible and ethical. That money is not there and the business case for why that is needs to be made. And so right now, activists are sort of trapped in needing to use the hardware produced by big tech while also pushing a decolonization agenda. And it feels very incongruent, but the absence of a viable alternative is complicated. Let's go back to the series itself. There are very powerful VR experiences pitched as training empathy. For example, traveling whilst black. But we know that as a white person, this could perhaps heighten my empathy as a white person, but I will never know what it feels like to travel whilst black. So is it possible that sometimes VR experiences could be branded as a shortcut to each other's lived experience? One word that's commonly used is appropriation. And where is the line between appropriation and empathy? That's really one of the set of questions to think about. There's, you know, lots of questions of can you move even from individual consciousness to a collective consciousness that would actually move someone would move someone in the direction of actually taking action in society that would help to strengthen bonds that they may have with different groups or different actors. So there's a lot of yet-to-be-determined, really exciting exploratory work in terms of how to center people in experiences, the lived experiences of other communities in a way that's substantive and in a way that translates into a type of collective consciousness that would be more than just like, okay, you take the headset off and you go off and you continue with your implicit biases. That is the research that needs to happen right now. Understanding like how to maximize for that, I think the potential for doing that is there. 
That's really interesting that we all might share experiences, but we may not have the specific experience to render the appropriate amount of empathy. Mm. And that is surely a challenge in this emerging technology to be able to generate or develop. And there's always unintended implications that we're not aware of. And so understanding what those could be, you know, some people are doing some of that research already of how in an era of misinformation, some of these tools could be used to manipulate people's thinking or feelings about things in the opposite direction. And so what are the safeguards in absence of any policy or regulatory protections that I don't envision happening in the next five or 10 years around this particular type of technology? Like, what are the safeguards that these artists and these creative, intelligent people that are using these technologies that they can implement right now to account for the potential of unintended consequences? We've talked generally so far about how ARVR can support social justice, but can we explain that to listeners, where it might have an impact? There's many ways that ARVR is being used in a variety of settings, which has the potential to be really transformative in the health space, especially in the time of the global pandemic that we find ourselves in. ARVR is being used to help doctors treat patients that are dealing with issues that have mental health implications that can contribute to depression or other mental health needs. And so the ability to use ARVR to transport a patient into a different setting that can be more rehabilitative has shown a lot of promise. There's also a lot that is happening in terms of how we do narrative change work and how we elevate the stories that are not always heard in kind of new, powerful ways, whether it's using ARVR to elevate the experiences and the stories of Indigenous communities, not only as a way to tell their stories, but also in a way that can be preserved in a medium that is much more than capturing it on a book or even a film. To think that we are potentially looking at losing some of that heritage from Indigenous communities, but being able to preserve and to continue to grow that in a medium like ARVR that will give that lots of power and strength in the years to come. If it does turn out that an Indigenous community is not able to sustain itself in the years to come, their stories and their experiences will be captured And for social justice actors, there is a lot that's happening in terms of how to build, how to tell the stories of communities. And this goes back to what we're talking about, how to really talk about racial equity or structural racism in a way that centers someone right in what that experience is like, is something that no other storytelling format has been able to do or can do. And so storytelling with that positionality, especially when you're trying to disrupt structural racism and sort of the implicit bias around that. ARVR is uniquely positioned more than any other medium to be able to empower activists and storytellers to engage audiences in a new kind of more powerful way. I'm just wondering, where generally do you think it will be in the next 10, 12 years in terms of ARVR and its daily use in our lives? It's only going to grow, really, if you look at what is being imagined right now 
in the innovation spaces like Silicon Valley, already the ecosystem of what is termed a metaverse is being developed right now. They're starting to build collective virtual shared spaces that really enhance physical reality and also include virtual worlds all in one. And so the conversation around metaverses, the companies that are being funded to explore the development of a metaverse is happening right now. And that ability for us to go from virtual to physical to augmented in the next 10 to 12 years is going to be seamless when you look at what those conversations look like right now of the people that are innovating that right now. And so it's going to happen much faster than we realize. And it's both exciting and both frightening to think that in 10 years, our sense of physical reality is going to include these other mediums. And it's all going to be one seamless experience. ARVR has been around for a very long time, but the pandemic has accelerated the need for it. And the companies developing the products and making them more democratically accessible and cheaper. This is very much what the world is going to look like. How do we start talking to people about what that reality looks like and engaging them around that? And that's against the concerns that we talked about earlier about data, privacy, surveillance. Do you think that given the speed of the development of this emerging technology that we can still unleash the activist potential of virtual spaces? I think that we can, but it's going to take a lot of proactive collective sense-making that begins with a small set of actors that are concerned and interested and excited and building and sharing that knowledge and developing that community and that voice. I'd much rather attempt to do that than just sort of throw our hands up in the air and say, okay, this is what's happening and we should just wait until we're in the metaverse in 10 more years and just deal with the implications of that. I'd much rather know what's coming up ahead and work with anybody who is engaged, again, proactively in experimenting and also creating the safeguards. That work starts very small, but that small could be pretty powerful as well. That was Wilnada Negron, Strategic Advisor at the Ford Foundation and Atlantic Fellow for Racial Equity. This brings us to the end of our series, Being Human When Digital. We hope you've enjoyed listening. This is Atlantic Fellows Conversations, and I'm Fanula Sweeney. To find out more, visit our website at www.atlanticfellows.org.